Well, Alex, thank you for joining us. This is an absolute moment for us. I don't think you guys realize it, Tifo, how much the rest of the world loves you. <laughs> um, no, I guess. I mean, I, I, I read the comments under the videos sometimes, and and that, that that's a mix. You know, there's some love there. There's definitely some hate as well. Um, but yeah, no, it's lovely. It's lovely to, to be with you this evening for you guys this morning for me, obviously, because of time zones and whatnot. But thank you for asking. As I'm not sure, you would probably not realize because Nathan and I, it's uh, the only way that we can really connect and speak about football is through TIFO. And that's probably the most special part about speaking with you today. And you know, Nathan and I, have we've always had this insatiable appetite to learn more about football, especially because in Australia, there's just such limited coverage in our national media and, and TIFO's absolutely filled that void. What do you make of TIFO's impact across the globe, apart from the little comments that you that you see? I mean, I guess it's, it's always been uh, like a really pleasant surprise for me. Um, I mean, T Tifo, you know, when Joe started making the videos um, and it, it was very much a way of, of, of looking at the content that we were already doing and trying to package it up in a different way. Um, obviously, you know, YouTube straight away opens you up to a, an audience that can find your content more easily than just having a website and, and, and social media. Um, but looking through, you know, when we when we do the audience demographic breakdown and we can see where in the world people are are watching our stuff, you know, that's it's it's pretty cool to realize that you're reaching people in, you know, Ghana and Nigeria and Nicaragua as much as you are in the US or Australia. Obviously, you know, the UK and Ireland is is our main demographic, but um Sometimes we'll put out a video that's specific to a country that we don't normally talk about. Um, so the NSARS video, for example, that we did recently uh, on the, um, the the civil unrest that there, there's been in, in Nigeria. And straight away, you can see you're reaching an audience there of people who are from that country or from the diaspora. And, and they're saying, thank you so much for doing this and, and for talking about it. And I think one of the things that, that Joe's always been really, really um, keen on with TIFO is that we don't shy away from from dealing with these difficult topics. And I think that's that's one of the ways that we've been able to reach out to a wider global audience is by talking about things that matter to people outside a very kind of Western, you know, Anglo-ethnic, you know, this, this is football that, you know, it's England's game, blah, blah, blah. We, we talk about it everywhere. Um, and and I think that really helps us. I think the the game is it seems like the coverage of the fo uh, football is very Eurocentric, as you just mentioned. And and as you see when you look at the YouTube analytics of where uh, some of your viewers might be, and that is in itself you know it can be surprising in a way. What what has been the biggest surprise so far in your journey with Tifo Football? Uh, I think surprise would would probably be. Um, probably be the affection that people have for TIFO. Um, I mean, it's, you know, content, there's a lot of football content out there um, and some of it's really, really good, but there's something about TIFO and I, I, I can't explain it. I don't understand why it happens, but there seems to be a genuine sense of, of a community of TIFO fans um, and 
you know these these are the sorts of things that that people when they're talking in a kind of marketing sense about about you know content or social media or that they'll they'll try and chuck these buzzwords in and talk about a sense of community and everything but i think with tifo we genuinely have it um and i don't know whether that's because there's there's quite an authentic feel to the way we talk about stuff it may be the breadth you know we'll look at tactics but we'll look at politics and sociology and and the rest of it um it's probably joe's voice quite a lot um because i think that's it <laughs> because joe's voice does just seem to draw people in and and sort of then lull them into this lovely relaxed sense of you know they they they're learning stuff but they feel like they're being gently cuddled at the same time is that where the warm embrace comes in i i guess it is i mean joe cool joe will just he'll say things on podcasts and and seb and i who are perhaps a little more dry uh and a little more um i don't know what's the word sort of i don't want to say rehearse but like seb and i are kind of we're there to talk about a thing you know and then joe will just yeah he'll just go somewhere else he'll just take it on a tangent and that might be cool hands and warm embrace it might be something completely different you you never entirely know what what he's going to say I think Nathan has a theory about this because your voices just sound so articulate. I don't know if it's the South Englishman in you here, but everything just sounds like you're an academic professor. <laughs> Must be the British accent that carries carries it forward. Well, possibly. I mean, I I I was an academic researcher. Um, I I was doing a PhD in medieval English literature and teaching undergraduates. Um, and I think I, I'm not saying that that being clever helps you speak about stuff, but I do think if you're used to presenting information to other people orally, then that that's a skill that you can practice and and learn over time. Um, I used to hate doing it as well. I used to hate giving like conference papers at, uh, at you know sort of little conclaves of medievalists and standing up and talking about Chaucer or what have you. Um, I was very nervous. I would sort of scratch the back of my head like this and try and avoid eye contact with people. But it's definitely, you know, it's it's something that you can grow into. Um, and and Joe, Joe's very good at it naturally. Um, and and I have learned how to be better at it as time has gone on. Um, and I think there's still there's still room for improvement. Definitely, I have a tendency to waffle slightly. Um, and I can get into these little nerdy cul-de-sacs and, and have to be rescued sometimes. But, you know, it's uh, it seems to work quite well. So, yeah, people enjoy it. We love your tangents, yeah. It's, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal, <laughs> I think. I feel like almost a little bit like a mind reader, considering I, I've, I pinned you down as an academic, and you, you absolutely lived up to expectation here. And I'm trying to work out, how does someone go from a medieval academic to working in football full-time how does that happen by way of six years in in the police for a start which <laughs> which doesn't really answer your question or make it any easier to understand um i mean when one of the things i found about being an academic was it was a it was difficult to feel like i was part of a wider community or or to connect with anything you know i i loved my research and there were some really interesting people there but i was looking at a topic that was incredibly niche and i knew that if i was going to teach other people 
particularly at the university that I was at, then, you know, a lot of them would be doing it so they could go and get a job as a lawyer or a banker or, or what have you. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But it became increasingly difficult for me to kind of justify doing that to myself. Um, and then I I ended up having to drop out of the, the PhD because somebody published a load of stuff in the US, which rendered quite a lot of my work unoriginal, which was just bad luck. I mean, it happens all of the time. There's no, you know, there's no kind of cheating or plagiarism or anything involved. That's a late minute heartbreaker there. Sucker punch. It's, it was a little bit, it was a little bit an extra time, you know, <laughs> winning or golden goal or whatever. Um, so I decided to try and find something that was um, a- as opposite to academia as possible. And by that, I don't mean not intellectually challenging or rigorous. Um, I mean, working with other people, having some sort of wider purpose and all the rest of it. So I spent I spent almost six years in the police as a direct result of that, wanting to kind of do something for the benefit of others. Um, and then when I left the police, because it's a terribly run organisation in the UK, the, the Metropolitan Police, or was at the time, probably still is, and I just got fed up with not being able to do my job properly. Um, I had been starting to read more good football stuff. Um, so I think the the 2010 World Cup uh, saw, I don't know, there was a lot of good tactical writing. Michael Cox was kind of bubbling up. Um, Inverting the Pyramids had been published two years before. The Blizzard started about a year or so afterwards. And I started to get back into that sort of thing. I, you know, I'd played football at university. I'd played football at school. Um, but it, it was just the right time for me to find a way into writing about football that was more kind of culturally focused. And I'd look at football and art or football and literature and uh, started blogging about it. A few people noticed that on Twitter. And so when I left the police, I thought, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try freelance football writing. Um, and I have to say, it was a very, very silly thing to do. I mean, retrospectively, it all worked out fine. But I was so ill-prepared. You know, I didn't I didn't have the contacts. I didn't have the experience. I, I just kind of blindly went for it and thought, yes, I will be able to make, you know, make this work. Um, and it took... It took a good couple of years and some lucky breaks. And in fact, my first my first proper kind of sports gig was actually in rugby, rugby union, rather than in football. Um, so I worked with a guy called Simon Gleave, who's uh, who's a, what was called Infostrada, is now called Grace Note. And we did the Rugby World Cup stuff, um, doing data and analytics for their website. And that was the first time I'd been part of like a grown-up you know, team of content producers working on a sports event. And it was really exciting. Um, it was it was great until until Australia beat Scotland in the dying moments of a game. And I was very upset. Um, but that, that kind of, you know, at that point in time, I think <clears throat> blogging, the first wave of good bloggers had kind of passed through. People like Michael Cox had started to get actual jobs. Um, but Twitter felt like it was still a much friendlier and more collaborative place than it is now. And so you could, you know, get messages from people that were 
looking to hire somebody and you could have you could have conversations with people that were helpful and instructive rather than this kind of cavalcade of bitterness that sometimes now seems to populate it um so yeah i i I got very lucky in terms of timing i got very lucky in terms of of a few individual instances of being hired to do stuff uh and then i linked in with tifo um and i'd known joe already from a podcast that he used to do called the illustrated game uh and tifo which was called umaxid at that time was looking for writers um i was starting to get more interested in tactics and data from largely from the rugby stuff actually um and it just kind of worked out from there you must laugh though i don't know if you've been invited to to go back to universities and speak to sports media kids and then they ask you oh how'd you end up in sports media and you just go well it just happened it yes i mean the good thing is that there is a there's definitely a sensible answer to the question of how you should end up in it um you know that there are still you can do there are some excellent sports journalism courses here in the uk um there are some really great courses in fact winchester university my local one has a very very good course in the history of sport which can then lead you off into uh into kind of fertile areas to look at um there is still although increasingly less uh the role of local newspapers um and and it's really encouraging to see people like Reach PLC, where Greg Johnson is the head of football, um, you know, putting out adverts for for um, the, some of the sites that they have. You know, they they are still hiring even in a really tough economic climate. Um, because I think sport is one of the things that people, <clears throat> not everybody obviously, but a lot of people looked forward to during the lockdown period. You know, the resumption of sport. Um, it's one of the things that gives people something to concentrate on something to get excited about and obviously surrounding that with with good and interesting writing about it is part of of making it accessible and interesting um so you can you know you there are there are avenues into writing about sport that are a lot more sensible and intelligent and well informed than the one i took which was basically i'm going to just see how this goes and fingers crossed did you always think, though, that the people that you spoke to, they had an understanding of football, but nothing like the way that you saw the game, the way that you viewed it and, and the understandings and takedowns that people wouldn't realise about the game? You were already seeing them. So I guess I guess that's something that's developed over time, actually. Um, so my my... One of the things from my from my academic research and also from stuff that I, I I've done otherwise is I'm I'm obsessed with patterns and and particularly visual patterns. Um, so I mean, with with the academic research I used to do, it was about intertextuality, spotting when sentences, phrases, ideas have been used in one text and then borrowed and put into another. Um, so I've always had this thing where I can, you know, I can recognize those things. I can keep them on my mind. And when I see them again, it's like, oh, no, that's, that's that again. Um, applying that to football was something that happened or initially, like I say, in part because I, I applied it to rugby and rugby was a game I was better at as, as a player of, um, 
And so I guess it came more naturally to me to see what was happening on a rugby pitch. And, uh, and then I figured, well, you can, you can do this for any sport, you know, and, and it's interesting to do it for football. I also was very lucky in that Inverting the Pyramid, Jonathan Wilson's book, was exactly the kind of book I enjoy reading, even if the topic wasn't tactics, because it's very well researched. It's quite dry, but there's enough anecdotally in it to make it more interesting. But it goes really deep into a topic and provides this kind of through line of development that you look at and go, oh, okay, that this this makes sense. You know, there's something to really get to grips with here. So I think you know i don't i don't believe that without inverting the pyramid i would have got to this stuff uh as quickly as i did i think that was really instructive um and also i i guess i don't get caught up in the emotion of stuff quite so much you're heartless you know it's not i'm not cold and heartless (laughs) i you know it's I, if you show me an advert for a dog charity, I will be, you know, I'd be very sad. It's there's something about the way that I get into sport, which which doesn't require so much that stuff. You know, if I watch Southampton and 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 they do well and then they lose, you know, like they did against United recently, obviously I feel something there, but I don't, you know, I'm not like oh, oh you know, it's that's i don't know why so so there's a kind of i guess what i'm saying is that there's a skill set there was a cultural context almost and then there's a something that just dovetails with what i'm kind of generally like as a person and and i got very lucky so the again moment you were like oh he should have just tackled him first time instead of everyone absolutely (laughs) losing it you're kind of looking at these things and thinking well if he'd stepped over there or you know know, it's it's i i suppose don't get me wrong there are always there are always moments in sport where i mean i can still remember for example where i was sitting uh, for the first game of the 2002 world cup when senegal beat france 1-0 and i remember watching that game because at university where i was at the time we'd had a sweepstake uh for the football team for the the nations that we would support during the World Cup. And obviously, you know, there was like a, a prize. And I drew Senegal and and sat down to watch the the opening game of that tournament uh, with everybody expecting France to win as defending champions and everything. And then Senegal go and beat them. And I, I was like the only person that was happy. And wasn't Papa Baba Diop the first goal scorer as well? Yeah, who very sadly died. Um, so it's not like I'm... I'm I'm entirely divorced from getting enjoyment from stuff, but I think I suppose part of it is that I find a lot of that stuff really inflated, and and uh, but by which I mean the media drives these kind of narratives, and, and I'm not I'm not talking about you know the individual depth of feeling that a fan has when they're watching their team. What I'm saying is that if I have no interest in a team then there's a likelihood that if I respond emotionally to stuff, it's because the narrative that frames that particular game is kind of geeing me up to see it as Pep versus Mourinho, 
light versus dark, blah, 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 you know, and then when it happens, it's like, oh, this, you know, Pep's got, and I, like, I don't care about that stuff. I, I just, I don't, it, you know, if you're, if you're a Manchester City fan in the stadium watching that game, have at it, go as wild as, as you like. But if you're, if you're like me and you're sitting back, then it's, you know, there's no, it feels almost artificial to get kind of drawn into the, oh, ah, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll watch it with the sound off and, I hope there's no Sky Sports recruiters listening to this. The thing is, like, I mean, I'll be entirely honest. I I would have no interest in working in this space for anyone other than TIFO. If Sky Sports or the BBC or whatever wanted me to... I, I Like, I just wouldn't. You know, part, part of what makes TIFO what it is, I think, is that, you know, Joe and I knew each other from before... Seb and Joe knew each other from before. Our studio manager is Alice, who is Joe's sister. Uh, some of the illustrators I've met previously because they're, you know, they're old friends of Joe's. You know, the the company, obviously now we're at the the Athletic, we're kind of we're working with this whole other group of people, which is fantastic. But the core group of Tifo people, you know, we're we're sort of friends and and we know each other and we know what we're good at and bad at and like joe can be critical of my stuff without me thinking oh this is terrible you know what does it mean for my job security or like it's just it's just joe saying that was not very good to do it again and it's you know it's fine because it's him um so there's there's something about what we do and how we do it that that i think makes it something i really enjoy as opposed to the idea of talking about football generally, like, don't get me wrong. I like talking about football. I like watching football, but it's in the context of TIFO that makes it rewarding and engaging in a way that has kept me interested. Um, and I don't think I'd necessarily have that doing it for somebody else. I suppose it also feels like a big family and, and this kind of journey that you've come come together across from, you know, you master football to TIFO. Yeah, totally. With the athletic as well. We're also on Sky Sports. You're kind of not even like I think on the same level as the, as the other ex players that they have on as pundits. You know, you, you're you would be yeah. kind of just that football nerd on Sky Sports to tell you about the maybe yeah. the expected and, goals. And there are, you know, there there are some people who who have made the jump from. So I'm I'm thinking particularly of Ali Maxwell and George Ellick, who uh, have a, a brilliant brilliant podcast called Not the Top Twenty, uh, which is about the football league, so everything under the Premier League. Um, and, and they will now go on Sky occasionally as, you know, championship particularly experts. And, and that's brilliant. You know, I, I love seeing people who really know their stuff and have researched it and live and breathe it and are articulate and smart getting those opportunities. And I think there should be more of that. You know, I think we should there's there's absolutely scope to open mainstream punditry up and take it out of the hands of a small coterie of ex-professionals don't get me wrong some of them are really good but a lot of them in my opinion aren't um that's again reflective of the way i like to hear about football and that's not necessarily what everybody wants um but you're right there is definitely something about the fact that you know joe and i started off what would it have been maybe 2014, maybe slightly later, doing social media 
for what was UMAXIT. And then a couple of years later, we're having meetings about how we can expand it. Then a year later, we're in an office working together most days and talking about ideas and throwing things back and forth. And then a few months after that, we're invited to San Francisco. And like there is there's a journey of of how how UMAXIC became TIFO became what it is now. And having been a bigger and smaller, increasingly, I suppose, bigger part of that makes it more special. Um, because yeah, it's, you know, we've, we've achieved something with it, I guess. So what happens I'd like in to San think Francisco so. stays in San Francisco? Uh, well, what happened in San Francisco was, so we, we'd already met the athletic in, I think it was maybe, I want to say June or July. So, so they were over in the UK, um, doing their big hiring drive ahead of the launch of the of the what is called the athletic uk but you know is basically the the football side of of things excluding mls and league mx stuff which incidentally is really really good as well um there's there's some fantastic writing about about north american sports on the other bit of the the site um so yeah we went and, and chatted to them and initially they wanted to sponsor the the podcast um as kind of, you know, surfacing the brand in the UK a little bit. I was already a subscriber. I had been a subscriber for probably about eight or nine months because um, I, I I can't remember how I came across it, but I just really liked some of the longer stuff, the way they talked about uh, some of the nerdier aspects. Um, so I was already sold. I was like, these guys are, are good. You know, we should definitely listen to what they have to say. Um and then as the that relationship kind of matured a bit over the course of a couple of months, we were then, so me, Joe, and Neil Clerk, who was, uh, you know, the, the sort of the original founder of UMAXA as it was, um, we were invited to San Francisco and, and it was very much a sort of, you know, if we were to combine, i.e. them by us, um, what would it look like? What ideas do you guys have for, for where that could go? And it was genuinely exciting. Um, I mean, it was only 36 hours, which if you, the time differences from here to San Francisco is, it basically killed me. Um, and I'm somebody who used to do night shifts. So, you know, um, but it was, I guess if you start a small company like, like TIFO, then the, the the dream is to be able to continue that with some sort of financial backing or security that allows you to keep doing what you're doing and enjoying, but with this sense that it's kind of going somewhere, that it's not just a daily grind to, you know, make enough advertising revenue on a monthly basis to keep your head above water. Um, and The Athletic had like I say, I, I was already sold on the basis that I'd been reading their stuff for months, um, well ahead of them talking to us. But, but it just felt like these were people that wanted to talk about sport the way that we wanted to talk about sport and that they were already doing that. And then you look at the list of the people that they'd hired in the UK to talk about, you know, James Horncastle for a Serie A, Rafa Honigstein for the Bundesliga. You're like, obviously, obviously you want to be part of that. You know, I can now WhatsApp James Horncastle and say, 
just tell me something about Sassuolo I can put at the beginning of a video. And he's like, yeah, of course. Blah, 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 blah. Like, it's, he's such an expert and he's so nice as well that, you know, and so having that. that does it for me as well. Apart from the knowledge. He's, he's just, just got that thing, hasn't he? You know, but, but underneath that debonair, charming exterior is, is somebody who really knows what they're talking about, you know, and, and there's, there's a generosity of spirit among the journalists where, you know, when we were working on the Sensible Transfer series over the summer, for example, and, and teaming up with editorial to do that, or yesterday, for example, I rang up um, Chris Woff, who's uh, Newcastle United, and we just chatted for 15 minutes about issues with Newcastle United. And there's the kind of, we have access now to this range of people who are really good, but also really nice and, and happy to talk about stuff and want to talk about stuff. Um and it just makes what we do better and kind of easier as well, which is no bad thing. Every day it sounds like you've made the right choice not not moving to a Sky Sports. Otherwise, you might be standing outside uh, Dortmund's training ground fighting with other journalists for the latest scoop on Jaden Sancho or, or someone like that where there's not such a yeah. communal spirit. You know, and, and, and there's... I think one thing that I'd be keen to emphasize is there is, in my opinion, there is absolutely a place for that kind of stuff um and i would never ever want to give the impression that i personally certainly not not tifo kind of looks down on other forms of of football content that's completely not what we do and i make use of that stuff you know but it's not what i would want to be doing um it's not what joe would want to be doing and i also think crucially you know if 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 we were working somewhere else, we wouldn't be able to put out a video on is your football club going to be underwater by 2050? We wouldn't be able to put out a video on SARS. We wouldn't be able to talk about, you know, the the issues with Mohammed bin Salman acquiring Newcastle United. Like being being with TIFO gives us a license to be able to do that stuff because we've built up a reputation for being fair and honest and impartial. Um and and that's i'm not saying again that sky sports news isn't fair and honest and impartial but they're not going to let us do that stuff you know whereas the athletic were like yeah brilliant keep doing that stuff that's you know we like that i think it was really impressive that 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 uh, because as a politics major political science major myself that okay i quite enjoy especially those videos where you have all the uh, political news about especially especially in the Premier League now with the kind of sports washing with Newcastle or Man City yeah. or, or or even the Nigeria SARS thing um, yeah and and you know you talk about how Joe wasn't afraid of shying away from these topics how, how did you feel about taking you know a bit more of this political route because I think in, in football or sports in general you have people saying you know oh we shouldn't mix politics and sports but in yeah. reality they're kind of all I mean, interconnected it's... in a way in in reality, um, everything is political. That's Nothing what I is not political. <laughs> That's what I believe. You know, I, so. If 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 I there there is no there's no interaction that I can have as a human being that does not have some political valency. Um, it might be the choices that I make as a consumer. It might be the choices. I mean, by purchasing things, it it might be which media I choose. It it might be. Uh, you know accepting something about my football club or challenging something about my football club but if if we are rooted in society which we are you know um 
everything has a political ramification or import or and so the idea that you know take for example the black lives matter protests um and and the action taken by premier league footballers and footballers in lots of other places for example my my dad is a huge formula 1 fan uh and loves lewis hamilton and obviously lewis hamilton has been at the forefront of uh of of that collective action among f1 drivers the idea that people outside of either outside of that sport or or even just outside of that individual can say to them, no 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 you you know you really don't kneel before a before a formula 1 race because you're a racing driver like it's just it's ridiculous it's ridiculous to try and lecture a footballer on whether they should or should not be allowed to express express a a, a preference in these things and it's not it's not like marcus rashford is you know lopping up a t-shirt that says vote labor on it it's like i can understand how overt political messages in some senses might be difficult you know if those footballers want to do that in their in their own time crack on like brian clough was a huge labor supporter um but but protesting against racial inequality (laughs) how can you say that's a bad thing i i just i i don't understand it and then yeah like Tifo has always, you know, the balance that we've always tried to strike is obviously when we handle these topics, we have to be sensitive to them. We have to get expert opinion to make sure that we are being fair and impartial and open. Um, and we lean on certain freelance journalists that we know will supply us with that stuff. Um, and that sits alongside climate change and sports washing and all the rest of it and we have got some very cool things in this space next year by the way i will say no more than that but but that's again you know part of what we like to do is you know we 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 want people we want people to be exposed to this stuff if you're if you're a football fan you should know if your club is taking dirty money or if there is an issue around governance or if there is corruption or whatever it is. Um, We're not going to tell you necessarily, therefore, like we'd never say boycott this team, but what we would say is you should be aware that this is a thing that you should consider and you may not have heard about it and you may not have had it explained this clearly and cogently before. But in order to get some of those people, it's also really good that we do why David Silver is missed by Manchester City because we've got this breadth of stuff that means we can we can appeal to people whose interest might be because they're Manchester City fans or they're David Silver fans or they love football tactics or you know we if we talk across the range of topics we're more likely to get people engaging with the stuff that then makes them think oh actually I should you know, I should take this more seriously. I should be an advocate for labor rights in Qatar, or I should support a petition to ban violence in Nigeria, or whatever it is. You know, I think I think you guys do a really good job of 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 kind of baking it into the content. Like you said, you talk about you know why Manchester City missed David Silva, but at the same time, you talk about things like SARS, and I think you do a really good job of the video kind of thumbnail and the titles as well. Because I remember especially with the Nigeria one where you talked about. You know, these footballers are standing up against SARS and all of this. I remember thinking, oh, so it's going to be like 
more about the footballers talk, talking about it, but when you go into the video, it's kind of majority of it is actually you guys delving into the issues and actually explaining it, and then you kind of sprinkle in a bit of the football links and connections to keep it tied to football. Well, I think I think that's that's crucial because also, you know, the way of thinking about that video, for example, is that if I'm a Manchester United fan, which I'm not, I although am. I see <laughs> you are. Um, you know, Odia Nagalu makes an impassioned statement via an Instagram video uh, about this topic. And if I'm a Man U fan, I'm thinking, what is that? Why Why is one of my footballers talking about this thing? So, so for us, the idea, yes, football is kind of a hook for that. And it's the reason that it's relevant. But if we're talking about the fact that footballers are talking about it and we're only talking about that, well, that's something that you can learn anywhere else. You know, the, the media was full of this footballer is saying that SARS is bad. So we're just duplicating things there. What we want to do is go, why are they saying it's bad? What is it? Is it bad? You know, and, and interrogate those things so that so that we're providing a level of information that goes beyond what everybody else is talking about and doing it in a way that is globally accessible where people have English as a second language the fact that it's illustrated and the fact that we use text on the screen does make it slightly more accessible also YouTube has a subtitling function um, so people can do that uh, and you know there's in some instances I don't want to be too crusady about it but it may be that that people are able to access stuff in our content that they can't access through the domestic media service in their own country because it's banned or because there's corruption or because the interests of that individual outrank the the tenacity of that particular news organization and they think oh we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about that you know so i i think i think tifo provides a really useful service in that way um and and yeah, it is more important than being able to make better football manager tactics from the videos that I do. It it just it is more important. Um at the same time, I think if we didn't have the balance, we wouldn't have the breadth of audience and we wouldn't have people who came for one thing sticking around for something else, which I think is really important. Yeah, especially when the, the biggest example I can think of that something maybe that's, that's really controversial, you know, that has some precedence is, is Muhammad Ali and, and his kind of advocacy of not being enlisted to go and fight in the Vietnam War. I think back, yeah. back then he lost his, 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 basically his career, he couldn't fight and there were, you know, two fervently opposing sides. But then now when you look back after all these years and history has kind of rewritten and, and smoothed over the edges and now he's kind of revered by everyone. Well, he was right, wasn't he? So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> war is not good. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think, I think you're right. I think people will look, will look back at these interventions, not necessarily in a different light, because I think, I think there are plenty of people who can see what Colin Kaepernick did for what it is, which is a, a hugely powerful and important transitional moment in, you know, certain areas of of u.s culture talking about racism that's obvious to a lot of people but i think when when this is looked at retrospectively i think it'll be seen in in that sort of wider context as being that important by history 
whatever that means, as opposed to just people saying it now. Have you always been very interested in, in the political side of things? Because right now you seem to be very well read and, and you understand these issues quite quite a fair bit. Um, I mean, I try. I listen to the BBC a lot, the World Service particularly. Um, my, my dad's uh, a, a journalist, so I, I grew up in a house where this stuff was talked about um but but also because he was a journalist it wasn't it wasn't slanted massively one way or the other it was it was like here are a series of of facts or arguments um so i grew up i guess in a situation where it was encouraged for me to be aware of the different facets of stuff without necessarily plunking myself down on one side or the other or hearing those arguments framed as this is what these people are saying but they are wrong you know it was much more discursive and open than that because as a political journalist he wasn't allowed to take sides so you know he he was thinking about it in that way um i think also as well having done a period of time working in the public sector here um that has i guess opened my eyes to a lot of things that that people coming from my background so you know i have a privileged background i attended a a very good school i then went to a very good university um that you know that if i hadn't had that experience i think i would not be as aware of certain of these issues as i am um and nothing will radicalize somebody i don't mean radicalize in a bad way but nothing nothing will increase a person's political engagement more than working for a government because you can see how badly a lot of things are done and it's very very frustrating speaking about raising awareness of issues in our current climate our mission here at dt38 is to change the stigma associated with men's health issues and the focus on testicular cancer and as such what has been the ballsiest moment in alex stewart's career Oh, um, I mean, I, I like I've, I've, there are various ways of answering this and I'm not sure I'm going to answer You have the creative some. freedom here. You have the freedom uh, of the fuck. Yeah, no, I know. But, I, but, I, but I also, I'm also sensible. Um, <laughs> sensible I mean, here, give it a plug. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely leaving the security of a job, even if it was a job that was driving me a little bit mad, and going, I'm going to be a freelance football writer. You know, that was, there was something quite ballsy about that. It wasn't very sensible. Um, like I said, I, you know, there are a lot of things I should have done that I, I hadn't done in terms of preparation and so on, but I wanted to do it and I wanted to make it work. Um, so yeah, and I, I would I would encourage people, I would encourage people to check their balls, obviously. Um, but I know that's that's not what we're talking about here. But I, I like if if you're if you are passionate about doing something, or if you really want to try and do something, then then do go for it. Go for it in a sensible, planned manner. Obviously, I'm not that spontaneous. Um, but there is evidence all around of this stuff working out if you want to do something and you're prepared to put the time and the effort into it there is a good chance it will work out well um 
So yeah, do that, but also check your balls. Of course, absolutely here. And did you ever feel the pressure succumbed with doing and going to such elite schools during university and earlier life? Was there pressure to always be that someone that it's achieved the success that you have now? I, I, mm, it's hard to answer that. I, I guess I, there's an internal pressure. Um, there's a sense that I, you know, I, I want to be good at whatever I do. Um, I, I can't say, I mean, my, my parents, my parents have always been really, really understanding of stuff. Um, the rest of my family also. Um, I mean, my brother's run a, a business buying and selling horses. My sister is a, a head teacher. So she's, my sister's really the only one who's kind of, you know, picked a career and stuck with it. Um, but that was after a couple of years of not really being sure what she wanted to do and so on. So I guess we're like, we're as a family, we're very encouraging of trying different things and, 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 you know, as long as you put the effort in and, and try and do it well, it doesn't really matter what it is. Um, I, I found, I found the, the expectations from the school that I was at to be a bit odd, I suppose, in the sense that, that it, you know, it was an elitist institution and, and there was an expectation not of, of individual achievement, but of, of, of how we would view having been at that school and the relationship, not even the relationships that we would carry on, but, but almost this kind of sense of what it meant to have gone to that school. And I found that very strange. I mean, it's a school, it's not, you know, but there's something slightly cultish about it in terms of how some people saw that. So that was something I very much took against and thought, I don't really want any part of that. And I, I don't have anything to do with it now. Um, but no, I, I, I guess, you know, I, I've done jobs that were pressured. You know, the, the, the police is a stressful job. It had an impact on a lot of things. When I left, I think I was not in a good state. Um, and, and so, you know, being able to talk about those things and, uh, be open about them is, is hugely important. Um, but you know, I think, I think actually I've been very lucky in terms of how the sorts of people that would ordinarily be there going, are you sure about this? You know, friends, family, and so on have always been supportive and encouraging of, of the various random things that I've ended up doing. Well, thank you for feeling Nathan and I's hearts up so much. I know you're not one for emotion here, <laughs> but we're so no. glad that you are the Francesco Totti here, the Tifo stable, and you are a one club man. This is very true. Yes, I, 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 I pledge myself to, and and I, I have also some really nice Roma shirts, so I, I appreciate the analogy. <laughs> oh, beautiful. No, thanks so much for coming on the DT38 podcast. Ah, thanks for having me. It's been been good fun. We hope we can see you in your your castle in Winchester one day. <laughs> yes. Well, you're always welcome to come to the UK. Please come. Well, thanks, Alex. <laughs>